0: Let's go with our 29th lesson tonight in our studies in Ephesians, in a journey that has brought us to the sixth chapter. We've arrived at what is technically the whole armor of God passage, but we're gonna save it. I was praying coming into to this week of how to do this whole armor of God because you know there's the piece breakdown and do you wanna do a week on each piece? And I, I really got a, a, a pretty clear word. Um, actually in the middle of the night last night, the Lord woke me up and, and put put the thought from the 10th verse of Ephesians 6 in my head. And so our title tonight is Strong in the Lord because that's the verse that introduces the whole armor of God passage where he tells us to be strong in the Lord. And that's the word I heard the Lord say was that, well, I want you to spend tomorrow, and this was last night I heard this. So this is how I spent my morning. I want you to spend tomorrow really looking at that verse primarily and what it means to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, not the power of your might. And so uh, I drifted back to sleep trying to think about the, the ways in which our society has really highlighted strength. Because it is a big topic. Um, and I don't just mean muscle, although that's a big part of it too. But really just not showing weakness. Um, always trying to get ahead. Always being hyper-competitive. Being number one. Winning. And it's, it's really, I think, uh, a product of a very affluent culture. You have a lot and you need new challenges. You know, we're not having to, like none of us are having to just barely live to get through the day. And so, uh, and most of the Western world, particularly, actually most of the world, I mean, the tides raised all boats as far as success. Um, and so we've had to create this kind of, this genre of, competitiveness and strength and hyper-masculinity and I'm seeing a real push for like a return to the alpha male and and it gets these weird definitions of, of what makes a man a, an alpha male or what makes a man a man and I think those weird definitions are because we're trying to we're trying to come up with with ways to sort of recapture that strength that strength that I think um can really only manifest itself properly in a relationship with the father. Um, Because outside of that, you're going to lean on your own understanding and your own understanding of masculinity, your own understanding of femininity, your own understanding of strength, your own understanding of power. And those things are going to be influenced by the systems of the world. They They can't help but be. You live in this world, you live in this age, they're going to be influenced by the spirit of the age. And so getting back to the basics of really trying to understand what it looks like to be a people of the strength of God is where I, want to, I really want to do some work tonight. Let's read the verse first. I just want to read the one verse to begin. And you'll notice the word finally tells you that Paul is gearing the letter down. And so this final stretch, really the whole armor of God is sort of bringing the thing to a close. We're slowing the, slowing the roll a little bit as you get near the end of the chapter. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might, I want you to think about strength from, a, from a, a little bit different perspective, not physical, not political, not personal strength. Um, and I want us to try and do what's very difficult to do. And that's sort of divorce this, the idea of the church associated with power. Let's divorce those two, the political power, economic power, strength and influence from the church of Jesus Christ or on a micro level from me, from you, from the individual believer that those things aren't defining us. And to try to extricate ourselves from that system is hard. It's easier said than done. That's for sure. So constant challenge. Um, I think we were talking about this last week after we finished, and we did a little Q and we started talking about the, the, how difficult that it is to to get used to reading the Bible through the lens of if it doesn't line up with Jesus, move on. You know, it's Jesus first. And then if the story you're reading in the Old Testament, you don't see Jesus in it, just move on. And that's difficult to do. I think we all kind of admitted that we weren't raised to read that way. So trying to learn to read that way is like a new lens. And we made the comment that that's the careful tension that's part of our responsibility as readers is that we just can't be lazy readers, you know, just lazy readers take in whatever we have to be active. And so that requires us to put a little bit into it. I think it's the same way with strength and, and the spirit of this age and trying to identify what, what it is, what, what true strength is, what true power is. Because if you don't actively push against it and work at it, you can become someone who thinks that power is something you can achieve politically something you can achieve financially and that if you get enough money and you get enough politicians on your side or you get enough people in Congress or the White House and then they're on our team, we'll have the power, we can do good. This is how we start to think. We'll have the power, we can do good. And that has led to a lot of theologies that I think are personally, I think are of the devil. I mean, too fine a point on it, I think the I think the theology of just war is of the devil. Um, Augustinians just war. We've been dealing with that dude for 17 centuries now, 18 centuries now, this idea that there are times when it's godly to go in and blow people up because you're doing better in the long run than not blowing people up. I don't I personally can't fall on the side of Jesus at the front of the army. I just, I don't see Jesus saying to his disciples, you know, sometimes we need to go in here and bust some skulls. Because if we did, in the long run, we could save some lives. Now, uh, not everybody agrees with that, obviously. Um, But I think that there's, that that ought to be a tension. That ought to be something that we don't just fall into line with and go, we've got the power, therefore might makes right. We can do whatever we need to do. If in the end, we make this happen, then we'll be okay. I, I think we ought to, I think we ought to have to work at that and really figure out ways to pull apart those theologies. And that's not easy. And I'm not saying it is. I'm trying to make that point. It's not easy. And it's not easy to, it, it sounds easy to go be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, but it's not as easy to be strong in the Lord. It's easy to start to try to be strong in us and to try to be strong in stuff and to try to align ourselves with power and then call it God because we won, therefore it's godly. And so learning the difference is part of the process of who we are. Um, I think our obsession with strength has caused us to see weakness as bad news. So any admission of weakness, um, any admission that we did something wrong, any admission that we're not good at something, We've even become sort of word police in a lot of circles of Christianity. Like we're not allowed to confess that we're not good at something because that's a bad confession. Can't say, well, I'm not any good at that. Well, you don't, don't say that you're in, in Jesus name, you are good at that. And you go, well, you know, I mean, you can say in Jesus name, I'm good at it. But the truth is I'm not, I'm not good at it. I mean, lying about it doesn't make it true for me to be good at it. Again, I'm not talking about things that are done deals in Christ. I mean, his righteousness is my righteousness. I don't have to feel like I'm righteous to call myself righteous because righteousness isn't a feeling. It's a standing. So I can say I am his righteousness even though I don't feel like it. That's not what I'm talking about. But I can't just confess my way out of weaknesses. And I don't think it's healthy to. Because in a lot of ways, in the place of my weakness, I learn what real strength looks like. Um... I think we've even gotten so bad at it that we we, we don't even know how to confess weaknesses without making them sort of, co- uh, sort of covert strengths. I mean, I was taught when you interview and they ask you, what are your strengths? Have three or four that you can talk about. And then when they ask you, what are your weaknesses? Which is a question everybody hates. We hate it because We don't want to be honest because if I'm honest about my weakness, you might not hire me. That's what people think. I was taught to say, tell them you have a hard time saying no. Why? Because it's a weakness, but it's kind of a strength. I'm going to be a really good worker. I have a hard time saying no. I have a hard time rejecting tasks. You know, I have a hard time. You know, I, I just want to be there all the time. And what you're, you're sort of masking a weakness with what you really are bragging about, which is that, you know, hey, I'm the guy you need. And, I, and we're so good <laughs> at make, turning, trying to turn our weaknesses into strengths. Okay, so put all that on hold tonight. Just, just, just sort of lay it aside And let's try to take the author of Ephesians, and let's just see if he has some things to say about what real strength would look like. The truth is, I think that he does. And to do that, I want to go to his letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want to work through 7 to 10. You're going to recognize this immediately. But I want you to just put this in the context of Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Same author. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. I'm going to leave that there for just a second. And I know we're not on this topic, but we're making it part of our topic, okay? Um, what we know is that Paul has had a revelation of Jesus. Paul's had such a powerful revelation of Jesus that he considers himself an apostle born out of due time, an apostle to the Gentile world. He says, I'm not like Peter and James and John, those first apostles, but I am like them. And this is Paul talking in that I saw Jesus. So Paul's kind of says to them, like, look, I saw him, whether you believe me or not. And I've always thought this has to be one of the tough moments in the early church, for the Peter, James, and Johns of the world who have Paul coming along going, hey, I'm an apostle too, I saw Jesus, and here's what he said. And I always give Peter, James, and John, those guys a lot of credit for how Paul's received. Um, However, there is about a decade and a half where they kick Paul out early in the book of Acts where they, they say, you gotta go. And some of that is that he needs to be refined They need to heal because they've been wounded by Saul of Tarsus. And you don't embrace the snake that bites you very quickly. I don't care how much he's been defanged. And so they need Paul to go away. Paul goes away. Paul has a renaissance. Paul sees Jesus. Paul believes, according to the letter he writes to the Galatians, that in Arabia, I think he goes to Sinai. I think he goes to repeat the Mosaic experience. And he goes to Arabia and he goes to the top of Mount Sinai and he claims he sees the resurrected Christ. And Christ gives him the new covenant. And Paul's so confident slash cocky. That's where Paul says, if anybody preaches anything else, let them be double cursed because I got the word and I'm right. And say what you will about whether Paul should have said it that way. The Christianity that we know sort of starts to flow out of Paul's revelation. I'll give Paul credit in that he did know that that kind of revelation could get to your head. (laughs) And so he admits, he goes, because of the revelations that were given to me, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. So here's the way Paul looks at it. It's like, and whether Paul's right or not, I'm not going to argue. Is Paul right that God sends a messenger from Satan to buffet him so he don't get the big head? This is Paul talking. And I'm going to give people permission to just put it in their words. And in Paul's words, he felt like whatever this messenger was of Satan to buffet him was to kind of keep him in check. Now, we've had a lot of theories of what that buffeting is. This is a poking. This is a stabbing. It's really a kind of a thorn word. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like getting stabbed with something that's not going to kill you, but it's really going to bug you. Like you're not going to rest. Well, it's kind of like a pebble in the shoe. You know, you don't run with a pebble in your shoe. If you do, you tear your feet up. You don't run very well. It can be done, but it's not fun. And so that Paul's kind of running this race with a pebble in his shoe. And he starts to look at the pebble in his shoe as something that, well, he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he doesn't know how to get rid of it. Whatever it is, he can't just get rid of it. Because if you could just get rid of it, you would. That's led some people to believe that he had a physical malady. Something was wrong with his physical body. He asked the Lord to heal him. Um, Some have said, because it's a messenger, that it was words spoken to him. Um, I got my own theories, but, you know, they're just theories. None none of us really know. And I kind of think it's cool that it was left ambiguous. It was kind of left private for 2,000 years so that we would be able to put our own thorn in there. (laughs) You know, like whatever it is bugging you, you can kind of, you can kind of feel for Paul. But if he told you what it was, you might be like, man, that's not that big a deal. Or that ain't as bad as what I got, you know, and and you might be right. So leaving it out is probably wise. So let's don't overthink it. Whatever it is, he asked the Lord three times. So specifically in prayer, three specific moments in his life where he really, because you guys, you, you pray like I do. You pray every day but there's sometimes you're in the throne room. You know what I mean? Like some days you're there and like you and, you and the Lord are having this conversation. And so I think it was in those moments that he, he's like, you know, you gotta remove this thing from me, it's gotta go. So instead of removing it, God teaches him a lesson. Look at nine. God says to me, he says to me, this is one of those moments, you got quote marks? It's one of those moments when you're using your red print Bible, they actually print this in red. Because our translators sort of assume that Paul's quoting Jesus. We don't know that. Paul never says he's quoting Jesus, but he does in the same way that I would say to you, the Lord said to me last night. Um, I don't know if you should put those words in red, but if you're going to, you know, fine. Um, That's what Paul's saying. So the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. Okay, let's leave the quote for a second and watch Paul comment. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities. That's what's made people think it was physical because he says infirmities, which is a word almost always reserved for something that needs healed. I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ, here's the same, here's strength in the power of his might from Ephesians 6. The power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, what's strength look like? Because goes, strength I've learned looks like when I'm weak, the strength of God shows up in me. So Paul gives us a template for how to, to define the strength of God. That has nothing to do with physical strength mental strength political power economic influence but rather the actual opposite of those things weakness which means weakness is the place out of which we find the strength of god whose weakness our weakness i am made perfect in weakness who My strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is God's strength made perfect in whose weakness? Mine. Not his. So where I find myself weak, I find the potential to walk in the strength of God. So think about it this way. Jesus was always hanging out with weak and powerless people. You don't have to read very deep into any of the four gospels. You'll find two, three, four examples. Read farther, you'll find 10 or 12. Every gospel... Weak, powerless, hopeless people. He even calls the same kind of people to be his disciples. He was inviting them into the kingdom to supernaturally elevate their lives. He never worried about naturally elevating their lives as much as supernaturally elevating their lives. That leads me to the question, did the powerful people not need Jesus? Why does he keep going to the weak people? Why does he keep going to the powerless people? Why doesn't he go to the powerful? Sometimes the powerful come to him. It never ends well, if you'll notice, in the Gospels, when the powerful come to Jesus. And it's not because Jesus goes, you know what, you offend me. Your power makes me sick. Jesus doesn't treat people that way. But Jesus starts to probe and poke like a thorn in the flesh at the thing that makes them powerful. As you watch him have his conversations with Nicodemus, or you watch him have his conversation with the rich young ruler, or you watch him have his conversations with Caiaphas or the high priests, Or the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Jesus starts to poke at those structures and the things by which they define themselves as being powerful. And the more he pokes at them, the weaker, the the more that edifice begins to fall. But every time, Nicodemus is a bit of an exception because Nicodemus in the end comes around. But we don't see that in John 3. It's not as if at the end of John 3, Nicodemus goes, you know what, you're right. I'm going to give my heart to Christ. No, but we do know that in the end, Nicodemus is one of them that wants Jesus released. At Calvary. But most of the time, what happens is those in power double down when they see Jesus. And they get defensive of their position. And it's very rare in the Gospels that weak and powerless people get defensive in front of Jesus. It's the powerful people that get defensive, it's the powerful people that hold on to their power, hold on to their wealth, hold on to their religion hold on to their heritage and their bloodline. Everybody else is just throwing everything to the wind and following Jesus. Why? We go, well, they didn't have anything to throw. Exactly. So Jesus goes and finds people who have less to lay down. And every time someone comes to Jesus has a lot to lay down, he requires it. They don't get off the hook. He doesn't go, well, you know, you can keep most of it and because it's really good to have some people in my clan that's got some pull. You know, it'd be nice to have a disciple that had an in with Pilate what if we had a guy in our group that had somebody on the inside in the temple that's exactly how we would think we go we need some people in our our 12 that's our boardroom we need some people on our board that's got some bucks we need some people on our board that knows Caiaphas and can get us a meeting how about somebody that can hang out with Herod at his beach house over in Caesarea maybe they could go talk him down when he gets mad we need some of that and Jesus never, worries about. he's picking up zealots and tax collectors and fishermen and a dude that ends up robbing them blind in the end and betrays him. and this is who he brings around him and just a bunch of life's little losers. That's who he calls a following. So do the powerful not need Jesus? Well, of course they do, but the problem is that we can fall in love with strength. And when we fall in love with strength, it's hard to fall in love with the weakness Jesus asks for. And that leads us to some foolishness in theology. Like I've quoted to you before that I had heard, I don't know who this was and I'm glad I don't, but that I can't get excited about the Jesus of the Gospels. He's too weak. Give me the Jesus of Revelation. And every time I think about that quote, which was, just some cocky guy on a screen walking back and forth across a stage that said it. And I can't help, but think that's the problem with what we've become is that we can't, we're not falling in love with the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we've created. And the Jesus that that guy's in love with in revelation doesn't even exist, but he's created a Jesus in revelation that looks like the generals he's been watching on movies. And the guys that are really firing him up, the hyper, masculine, the alpha male Jesus is coming back and the alpha Jesus is coming back as the lamb slain, who's dripping in his own blood and who has a sword in his mouth, not his hand. And you don't get more alpha than Jesus, but it doesn't look like the strength of the world. Okay. Told you it's a careful tension. It's finding that difference in what it looks like to, for the strength of him versus the strength of this world. Let me, let me give you a quote that is one of my favorite theologians, Robert Ferrar Capon. I just love this. This is one of the best of the best. Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable, improve the improvable or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of on a life he cannot. Kapan's good. What a quote, what a line. I've had that just burning through me lately. He came simply to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use Instead of on a life he cannot, and we're telling people that your life is a life he can use, but the message ought to be his death is the death that matters. He can't use your life. He doesn't want to use your life. When someone loves you, they don't use you. They receive you. I love my wife. I don't want to use my wife. I want to receive my wife. I love my kids. I don't want to use my kids. I want to receive my kids. Whatever they offer me, I want to be able to receive it. I may not want it. I may not love it. It may not be what I wish they would give me, but if I want to receive who they really are, I have to take who they really are. I I can't put myself and my demands on them. God's a better father than all of us. So God's receiving what we are in spite of ourselves. And he's not using our lives because he sees, boy, I could use her. I could use that guy, and that's kind of how we think. We go, boy, if we could just get this guy in church. Man, he's just got talents the Lord could use. And we've done that forever, and that's why we keep building secular edifices full of talents instead of lives that can't be used but doing something on a death that can. Christ's death, my weakness, his strength, none of that other stuff matters. It's not what I can do with how good I am, how smart I am, how much I am, but who he is rather. Okay, I can be all night on that, but a couple more verses. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, we usually jump straight into the whole armor right here. These are just like lobby verses for the, for the sanctuary of the militant. Uh, That is coming up on Whole Armor of God Sunday. You know, we're gonna march out a soldier. Some places you're gonna march out like an ironclad knight with a massive shield and a sword so you can be more period piece. Other places are gonna modern it up, you know, full fatigues, army boots, M16, AR-15, I don't know. We're gonna walk, you know, ride in on a missile or something. Um, showing the armor of God. Okay, I'm going to save the whole armor of God as a breakdown. We're going to save that for next week. It's not the breakdown that I've done in the past. And I'll tell you why next week. It's not important right now. What I think gets missed on the excitement of roll that missile in with that soldier riding on it is that Paul's actually used the letter to the Ephesians to build up to this point. And then he's just going to go right back and grab some old themes, and just use the same theme with a new metaphor. So it's not as if he's been building up to the whole armor of God as a metaphor. He's just changed his metaphor. It's the same message here that he's been preaching for the entire lesson. And so don't overdo it. <laughs> don't overstretch the whole armor of God metaphor. Just start here as sort of your lobby into this. Use everything at your disposal, because it's a complete set, don't think of the whole armor of God in terms of, boy, I'm good with the shield. I'm not good with the sword. This guy needs the boots. He don't have, and that's how we kind of preach it. You know, some of you got some of the armor. You don't have all the armor. That's kind of like saying you're kind of saved. You know, and that's, Paul's not trying to give you pieces of individual things you need to go out here and work for so that you'll be a better soldier. It's just another metaphor for the things that you have. Now, why do you need it? So that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Um, The word wiles is the Greek word methodia. Um, Better translated craft, deceit, cunning device, Um, It's an interesting word that only Paul utilizes. It's not even a word that appears in noun form in much Greek secular literature. Um, And I'm definitely open to being wrong, but I actually don't think it appears in noun form in Greek secular literature outside of the New Testament of the Bible. So Paul, he's not creating a word, but he's using a very rare one. He's sort of pulling a real Paul move here. Like taking something that exists, but sort of shaping it in his way. The truth is, though, this isn't the first time. Paul only uses this word two times in in all of his letters. And he uses them both times in Ephesians. And you've already seen the other one. Ephesians 4.14 is the only other usage of wiles, although it doesn't get translated wiles. I'll read it for you in a second. Paul seems to be, and I can only assume this because he's the only guy that uses it and he only uses it twice and he uses it in the same letter. So he must have it in his mind. He seems to be connecting one usage of it to the other. So the wiles of the devil from Ephesians 6 connect back to the trickery of men from Ephesians 4.14, which I didn't give you on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Here's Ephesians 4.14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So for Paul, it's the trickery of deceitful doctrine that is the equivalent of the wiles of the devil. He's not trying to create some new ancillary doctrine by which this pitchforked creature is out sneakily getting you if you don't militant up in your Christianity, but rather be on guard for the stuff I told you two chapters ago. I know he didn't use chapters, but I'm, you know, I'm using my We use chapters. Because two chapters ago, I told you be on guard for the sneakiness and the craftiness of people who lie in wait to give you these kind of foolish doctrines. And that was when Paul said, speak the truth in love, grow up in all things. So it was when he's encouraging the church to grow up towards the head not pay attention to the, the side stuff that's pulling them away. So he just shifts the metaphor in chapter 6. He just shifts it from the tricks of men to the tricks of the devil. For Paul, they're the same thing. That, that, the tricks of men are the tricks of the devil because that's what the devil's doing, is, is out with intent to trick. So when we talked about that whole put off, put on passage from Ephesians 4, if you'll recall, um, put off what you were, put on what you are, put off who you used to be and the way you acted because you're still doing it sometime. So put that off. Put on what you've become and what you're becoming. So that's part of allowing the Holy Spirit and yourself to participate, shake hands, hold hands, You've heard me say, well, we've been talking about this a lot more and stuff like The Great Physician lately. Look the doctor in the eye <laughs> as he says to you, this is going to hurt. but We can get through this. And if we don't excise this tumor, it's going to kill you. You're going to lose that leg if we don't take this off. And I know you don't want me to take this off, but we got to take it off because it's, it's a cancer. And you can scream all day long, well, I'm God's righteousness. I don't have anything like that. Well, good luck with the dark areas of your heart that you won't let anybody into. That just the snake's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, he's a snake in Genesis and he's a seven headed dragon in Revelation for a reason because they don't get smaller. <laughs> like, you don't hide them off in rooms and they just shrivel up and die, but rather they feast on the darkness. That's that fear, that's that pain, that's that heartache. So, Part of our Christian processes is putting off what we were in Christ, putting on who we are, and allowing the great physician to do his work. Did you notice, Ephesians 6:11, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. What did we talk about before? Put off the old man. Put on. The new man. I just told you, when you get to Ephesians 6, he's not doing anything new. He just switched the metaphor. It's not a new topic. It's not, he's suddenly all pro-military. No, he just changes the way he points it out. So before you were putting off the old man, you were putting on the new man. Maybe a couple chapters later, he goes, oh, but maybe they didn't get that. But I got some, yeah, maybe I got some soldiers in the crowd. Somebody used a military. To put on armor. He goes, that'd be, that, that's a good one. And then he lists off a bunch of pieces. Not with the intent of you got one, you don't have the other, but, but rather allow these things to become relevant in who you are. Okay, let's look at those verses real quick. Ephesians 4, 24. Put off your former conduct. I know we did this weeks ago. Message called put off, put on. If you've been watching in order, you watched put off, put on. Um, pivotal moment in this book, by the way, because it's, it's where you really get to the heartbeat of what he's trying to do. But I just want to give you an update. Put off concerning your conduct. Well, of course. I mean, you don't want to act like you used to act now that you know who you are in Christ. Why in the world would you go on acting like you used to act unless you just didn't know who you were in Christ? That happens. Put off your former conduct. The old man grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So as you change your mind, here's what you do next. Put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and true holiness. And so... Put on the whole armor of God is the renewed. Put on the new man in true righteousness and in holiness. It's not military garb. It's not a warrior mentality. It's the recognition that our greatest battles will be invisible. And therefore, so our armor is invisible also. And that if we're going to overcome the tricks of men, we're gonna have to put off who we were and put on who we are. And if we're gonna avoid the tricks of the devil, which by the way, are the tricks of men, then we're gonna have to put on the whole armor of God, which by the way, is just putting on the new man created in true righteousness and true holiness. It's the same story with different metaphors. Paul hasn't changed his message. He's just changed his illustration. You're allowed to do that. And if we could see that, we might realize that the putting on of who I really am is my only defense against the powers that be in the realm of the invisible. That's my only hope. Because if I I stay closely identified with who I was and I live him out now that I know Christ, I'm far too susceptible to the system of the world. If I put on who I am, put off who I was, then I might just, I might start to recognize that my true strength comes from recognizing where I'm weak because that allows me to embrace the new man. Now, this is yet one more of a thousand reasons why you wanna put off who you were because if you don't put off who you were, it becomes problematic in trying to overcome the trickery of men and the walls of the devil because by not putting off who you were, you don't recognize who you are. Now I'm afraid that in our strength-obsessed world, power-obsessed world, it's speaking to our old man more than it's speaking to our new man, the desire to have power. And if the only difference between you and someone in the world is that you attribute your success to Christ and they attribute their success to themselves. But every other focus, aim, attention, and effort are the same. You have to wonder if Christ really has anything to do with your blessing. And we've so aligned our thinking so many times with the stuff in the systems of the world by which we can gain authority and power and then slap a Jesus sticker on it that I think we need to go back to the drawing board and figure out whether or not that is a strength that is that opening line tonight be strong in the Lord and the power of his might so you go how do I know if my strength is coming from the Lord to me that's the million dollar question that's the great question so Put off what you were, put on who you are. If there's no putting off, it's probably the strength of man or the strength of self. But if there's a putting on of who you are in Christ, it's the beginning of understanding that you need, you need the armor to go into the battlefield because you're too weak on your own. So when we break down next week, we start to look into what those armors are and what, what it constitutes. Then we start to see how much of those I need in order to walk out what I want to walk out. But our final verse tonight is that 12th verse, Ephesians 6. we'll stop here because 13 really introduces the pieces of the armor. And I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to land here. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, In the heavenly places, everything's invisible. And so everything's power structures, not individual people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Look at it again. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Is Paul's way of saying, your battle in Christ is not against people. They are not your enemy. People are not your enemy. Do not try to justify making people your enemy. Your battle is never flesh and blood. It's always the invisible. It's not the visible. This is why you love your enemies, because they're not really your enemy. They're not who you're fighting against. And so it's part of who we are in Christ. So if we run into situations in which we've changed the spectrum of the battle to be against people and structures, I think we're missing out on on who we really are. I'll, I'll stop tonight with a Paul letter. We did this last week. We actually read all of Philemon. Um, Paul at his best, maybe as those last letters where Paul, the old gray-haired Paul, is saying stuff a little better. We're gonna do it again. Old gray-haired Paul's in prison and he's writing to young Timothy and he's doling out advice and he's giving some stuff that's just good golden, gold, man, Paul at his best. And he says this in 1 Timothy 4, 6. I'm gonna read a few verses. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you've carefully followed. I, we don't, I don't want to contextually go into all that precedes that, but this was a good lead-in verse. Verse 7. Reject profane old wives' and exercise yourself towards godliness. In a, in a nutshell, this is put off, put on. Okay. Watch out for the tricks of the devil and the deceitfulness of men, a.k.a. reject profane old wives' fables. I mean, old guys got it kind of distilled down now. Old Paul's like, you know, I'd have have took three chapters to say this when I was younger, but now I'll just say this. You know, stop listening to stupid stuff, Paul goes. Just reject all that foolishness. Reject fables. And then exercise yourself towards godliness. That's put on. Exercise is partly putting off, Right? Your exercise, you're exercising, you're taking off weight, sweat, toxins, old you. putting on muscle, fitness, better breathing, lowering your heart rate. I'm using physical examples. Okay. This is everything he said to the Ephesians in one sentence. Reject the stuff, trickeries of men, wiles of the devil. Put on righteousness and true holiness, whole armor of God. Put, exercise yourself towards godliness. And then this line, eight. Bodily exercise profits a little. Godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So Paul says, you're, if you exercise the body, that is a profit, but it's a little profit compared to the exercise of the spirit. And my goodness, if we flipped this baby around. <laughs> spending almost an obsessive amount of time on the physical man and so little time on developing the spiritual man. And I'm not sure we have done ourselves any favors with doctrines that say there's nothing left for you to grow in spiritually. Finished work means everything's done. There's nothing left to be done. And Paul would have said as an old gray-haired man, are you sure about that? Because there's some stuff that you do in the doesn't look like the you that you want to be. And so maybe if you were exercising your spirit, man. And so what does that look like? Well, you know, bodily exercise profits a little. Godliness is profitable for everything because it had a promise of the life that is and the life that is to come. So you can actually live the life that is promised to you. Abundant life, life more abundant. Jesus said, I come that you have life and the life more abundant. You can live that now. You can live and you can tap into the life that is to come. And I, I don't believe we do that through any other method than, than the spiritual concentrations, the spiritual disciplines. Now you don't turn spiritual discipline into law. There's absolutely no reason to put law on yourself while being spiritually, while spiritually preparing your heart to hear from God. I've got to do, I've got to read this much, I've got to pray this much, I've got to go this much. But just because you shouldn't make it legalistic doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Like for instance, you want to exercise, but you don't want to become a legalist with it. Cuz you want to kill yourself, become a legalist with your exercise. You want to burn yourself out, become a legalist with your workout. You want to kill yourself spiritually, become a legalist on how you read, how you pray, what you do, how much you go, how much you give. Become a legalist and it'll suck the life out of you and it will not advance you spiritually, it'll step you backwards. That's like working out to danger. Like you've run too much, you've lifted too much, burning up too much nutrient, your body's moving backwards, things are shutting down. But we've got this dynamic so flipped, we're really a visual culture, so we become obsessed, obsessed with the visual, with the aesthetic, with the work. And listen, not, this isn't an anti-workout, but my gosh, where is just a modicum, a modicum of spiritual workout? Of a little bit of Bible reading, a little bit of prayer time, a little bit of, I need to be around God's people, a little bit of, I'm giving into the work of God. I'm not even, we're not even asking for like percentages. We're not even asking for like people to really dig in there and do, but a little. And so I encourage the viewer. I encourage you. I encourage the listener. Talk to the Holy Spirit about the areas of your life where the discipline of your spirit could become part of your workout even if it's just learning how to be quiet for a few minutes and listen to the Holy ghost or learning how to go back to being a Bible reader a little bit. Again, don't have to legalize it. Don't suck the life out of it, but go to where there's life in it. If you're bored to death with your translation, switch translations. And you're like, oh, my church taught me, forget what your church taught you about what translation you need to read. Are, are you going to live your entire life bound to not reading a translation because someone else told you one was, be your own man, be your own woman, grow in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. And so throw all of that stuff on the table, let the Holy Spirit show you where, it, where it What is to stay and what is to go? Let's close this little part. For to this end we both labor and we suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. He's the Savior of all men. I love verse 10. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. These things command and teach. Nobody, Mm -hmm. verse 11's not getting done. These things command and teach. What's not getting done? Verse 10's not getting preached. Verse 10, he's the Savior of all men especially those who believe he's the savior of who all men, especially those who believe we're supposed to be teaching that like that's supposed to be the thing we're talking about. Hey, he's the savior of everybody, especially those who believe. I didn't say he's the savior of those who believe. I said, he's the savior of everybody, but especially those who believe. We go, What's that mean? Okay, let's talk. <laughs> and that's what we should be commanding and teaching. But that's, that, that, kind of inquisition that kind of searching is is only going to come out through spiritual exercise. So in a way, good way to land tonight, you can't put on the whole armor of God. Putting on the whole armor of God is putting on what you really are and putting on what you really are is recognizing what you aren't. And so his strength is made perfect in your weakness. You want the whole, you want the strength of God, the power of his might. It's, it's, it's not standing on a life that has nothing to offer, but rather a death that is the only death he can accept. And that's that of Christ. Next week, we start to slip on the whole armor of God and I am not going to make it a one piece a week kind of lesson. We're not going to do that. In fact, my goal was to do them all in one week. (laughs) We'll see. Um, I've done the piece by piece stuff um, years ago. That's fine. It's not the direction I feel compelled to go now. We will probably have to break it down into a couple because once you get into the sword and the word, of the spirit, there's probably a little too much to say um, in regards to that. Let's pray. And I want to pray for those who are watching. I really feel compelled to pray for those who maybe it spoke to you that it's time to consider disciplining your spirit and don't think of discipline your spirit as beating yourself to death. If you got that out of that, you weren't listening, but rather where, where are the areas in which I need to exercise the man that I am and that I want to be versus what I was. And you're not to give up lifting weights and treadmills. And this this is not an anti-physical exercise. But we've become a, a, a society that I think has totally flipped that. It's totally skewed the other direction to where the other stuff's just like, well, maybe on Sunday we go to church. Somebody tells us about God. Rest of the week, take care of me. Right, man, I think there's a, that's, that's, a, that's part of our shallowness. It's also part of our stress. It's part of our anxiety. It's part of our discouragement. It's part of our disillusion. It's part of why we're falling for the tricks of the enemy because we're working on us all week and then we go hear about Jesus for 20 minutes on Sunday. And you know, as well as I do, what we really do is hear stories and poems and illustrations for 18 minutes and then a two minute introduction to Jesus. And then we go right back out to trying to conquer the business world. And let's flip that. It's on us. All right. There's no other way to say it. It's us. It's, it's, It's for us to do. It's for us to say to the Holy Spirit, I want to be there. I want to be. Where do you want me? How do you want this to look? Father, thank you. This is individualistic. This is not uniform. This is not some legal layout law. This is what you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. But Father, every person watching and listening to this lesson has the ability to hear the Holy Spirit. And I believe that there are many of them hearing a gentle knocking right now on their heart that says, I want to spend time with you. I want to exercise with you. I want you to concentrate on my voice. I want to say things to you. I want to show you Christ in the scriptures. I want to speak into your mind and your heart. I want to be a part of your dreams and your destiny. I want to be a, the divine influence in your life. And I need you to pay attention to me in a way that you've been paying attention to you. Father, you've, you've said that to me so many times I realize, and, and we've, we've adjusted, Father. You and I have adjusted, and, and I have a lot more adjusting to do. And there's things that have to go, and there's things that have to be picked up. I pray that for every listener and every viewer, that we, that we continue to walk into that journey, strong in the Lord and the power of His might. In Jesus' name, amen.